Several months ago, I was asked if I would deliver a lesson similar to one that I delivered a number of years ago that dealt with our spiritual heritage. And uh, I had almost forgotten about it until I saw notice of a show that was going to be on the History Channel. And it reminded me of the background behind it. In 1976, Alex Haley, a noted author, wrote a book called Roots. And in it, he explored, it was what he called faction, part of it fact, part of it fiction, about his own heritage from which he came from the African continent. What that did was to spur many people to begin to try to find out what was their physical roots. And I don't know how many of you maybe have decided that somewhere over the past few years that you have begun to do some genealogical work to try to find out who your grandparents, great-grandparents, and even so forth are. I know that there's a number of even commercials on television now trying to spur people on to find out who they are and where they came from. But while many people are pursuing and trying to discern their physical heritage, is it important? What about your spiritual heritage? Where do you come from, spiritually speaking? And I'd like to point out to you that if you go to the Bible, you will find out that our physical heritage and our spiritual heritage may be two distinct things. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. Paul wanted those Jews to recognize that it didn't matter if they were physical Jews or if they were Gentiles because God's heritage is not counted by man's. But as you go to the book of John, chapter 8, Jesus was dealing with the Jews. And he told them that they were not acting like Abraham, their father. And their response was very direct. They said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if Abraham, you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And then he told them, he said, Abraham wouldn't do what you're doing trying to kill me. And then he went on to say in verse 44, you are of your father the devil. You see, their physical lineage was that of being a Jew. They go all the way back to Abraham. And yet, Jesus said, that's not who your spiritual father is. Your spiritual father is Satan. Well, I'd like to ask about your own spiritual heritage. And I'd like to ask, can we be a simple New Testament Christian in 2016? Here's what we're going to talk about tonight in our lesson. We're going to talk about the concept of of restoration. Sometimes you've heard people speak of the restoration movement or the restoration ideal. We need to talk about that a little bit and see what the Bible says about it. And then I would like to address the question that was asked to me, in fact, the part of this lesson, and that is what is the local history in Warren County of the restoration and how does that apply to us or does it apply to us? And then to talk about the future of it. 
Let's begin, first of all, to talk about the restoration. And some people today are even questioning, is that even a goal that we ought to pursue? It's even a goal that's even discussed in our country with regards to our founding fathers. Do we want to be the kind of nation that our founding fathers envisioned? Do we want to go back and follow the Constitution or do we want to change it to adapt and to meet what people think is the current beliefs? Some people debate reformation versus restoration. Let me for just a moment or two explain the two ideas to you. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed a document, the 95 Theses, on the Wittenberg Castle door in which he pointed out all the abuses that were taking place in the Catholic Church. He pointed out their spiritual and their moral degradation, how that things had gotten so far away from God's plan, and they call for reformation. That is to correct what we're doing. And the Bible does speak about reform. But reformation was not to go back to the original pattern, but was simply to reform the things, the abuses that had begotten that had gotten so much out of control. They were selling indulgences. People were buying them thinking that they could pay for a sin in advance and keep on doing things that were ungodly. However, restoration says, let's go back to the original. Let's try to find out what the original was and reproduce that. Now, I want to point out to you that the Bible teaches restoration. If you go to, for instance, to Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, Jeremiah first surveys the situation in which the children of Israel had gotten themselves. And he says, were they ashamed? Were they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those that fall. At that time, I will punish them, says the Lord, and they shall be cast down. And then verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you'll find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. You see, if you break that down when he says, stand in the way and see, look in the situation that exists in this world today. Look at the situation that they needed to observe in their day and be discerning about it. Number two, ask for the old paths. That is the way that God had set forth in the very beginning. You see, if you begin with the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai and you come all the way to the time of Jeremiah, they're not like God wanted them to be. And God was not calling for them to just reform some of their abuses. He was calling for them to go all the way back to the old paths. And he said, walk in it, be obedient. There you will find rest for your souls. A second illustration is found in Genesis chapter 26, verses 15 through 18. Moses records, now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. 
And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. Now compare for just a moment these wells to the church and to God's revelation as to what he wanted the church to be. And through the subsequent times that have followed, it's as if people are going to those wells and filling them in with some kind of debris with earth and the wells have gotten filled up again. Whether intentionally, as was the case with the Philistines, or unintentionally, what this has done has deprived people from the life-giving water. People have come to the point where they're no longer able to see and be able to derive that living water because these wells have been filled in. What did Isaac do? He redug those same wells. He provided the same water that was in that well from the very beginning, and then he returned by calling the wells by their original names. I think if you'll just see the, the illustration here, you and I need to go back and we need to redig the wells of truth. And we need to be going back to that original water. But to do that, you've got to remove all that stuff that's been thrown in that well over the centuries. And you call these Bible things by Bible names. Let me give you a third illustration of restoration. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 through 33, we're going to read about Jeroboam. And it says, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If the people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me and they'll go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. What he did, beginning with verse 28, he set up two calves. He put one in Bethel, he put the other in Dan. If you keep reading in verse 30, he said it became a sin for the people. Verse 31, he made shrines of, on the high places and priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. He ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. And you step back and you say, well, what did Jeroboam do? He changed the place of worship. He changed the priesthood. He changed the feast. He changed all these things. What did God want the children of Israel to do? Go back to that original pattern. And when you get to 2 Kings 23 verse 15, it says about Josiah, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place at Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin, had made both that altar and the high place he broke down. He burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. He removed everything that was an offense to God and went back to God's original plan. Well, now I ask the question, what would it take to restore the New Testament church? One of the things you have to realize is that when you open your Bibles, you see that there were offices 
that were appointed by God. If any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work, 1 Timothy chapter 3. You see that God gave qualifications for these men, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. There were deacons who served, evangelists who preached. And yet we live in a world today that is, has presidents and presiding boards and we have people who have all sorts of organizational structures. You need to go back to God's original divine plan. What about the plan of salvation? The Bible is quite plain what people did to become children of God. The book of Acts is a pattern And yet today, if you listen on the radio or the television or you attend any number of denominational bodies, they'll tell you, just say the sinner's prayer. Never mind the fact that the sinner's prayer is found nowhere in the Scriptures. What about the items of worship? The singing, the praying, the partaking of the Lord's Supper on every first day of the week. What about the study of God's Word? And yet... We find people have added all sorts of of things to this. Some of them have deleted other things. Worship has changed the focus from being to God to being for man. What about biblical terminology? Calling Bible things by Bible names. You see, if we want to restore New Testament Christianity to be what it was in the first century, we've got to find the heart, we've got to find the soul of godly people as revealed in the New Testament. That brings me to the idea of this local history of the Restoration. And I want to point out that as you start thinking about this, we should not think that throughout all the generations from the 2nd century, perhaps maybe to the 18th century, that people had just totally abandoned God. No, that's not the case. Because the Bible is very plain in Daniel 2, verse 44, that this kingdom that God would set up would never be destroyed, nor its sovereignty left to another people. You see, it was going to remain. Isaiah 55, verse 11, My word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. God's word was going to be successful. Oh yes, there's, there's people that have arisen, and there's been people who have fallen away. I wanted to emphasize the importance of the remnant with the scripture reading Because when I get to Romans chapter 9 and verse 27, Paul writes, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Chapter 11 and verse 5, even so at this present time there is a remnant according to grace. Throughout history there have been those who've loved God. We may not have always known who they were. But there have been those people. But there have been a number of people who have decided it's time to go back to the original. I have a really good book in my library called The Restoration Movements Around the World. And what it does, it takes various nations and points out that there have been people who've said, we need to go back to the original pattern. And they, because all they've used is the Bible, have come up with the same conclusion. 
and founding of the United States, there were a lot of people who had that pioneering spirit, that yearning for religious freedom, who came to this country and said, we don't want to be tied to the being a part of the king or queen of England and being a part of their church. We want to be Christians. And if you study a little bit of history, you'll find out there's a number of leaders who surfaced. Robert and James Haldane in Scotland, James O'Kelly in North Carolina, Martin W. Stone in Kentucky, Abner Jones and Elias Smith in the New England states, Connecticut and other ones, Thomas and Alexander Campbell in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. These are just people who, who started preaching and teaching. Let's go back to the original pattern. Now, if you focus on Warren County, right here where we live, the old Philadelphia church, we often talk about going out to old Philadelphia to have gospel meetings and singings and things such as that. That old building that exists there, there's no congregation that meets there now, but that's an important place. It was one of the earliest because there was a group of people who came from Bacomb County, North Carolina, who emigrated to settle here, and they settled in the area of old Philadelphia. There were four brothers, Elisha, John, Hugh, and William Price. In fact, William Price signed the petition to form Warren County in 1806. What's interesting is, is that these people likely came under the influence of two pioneers by the names of James O'Kelly and Rice Haggard. And you can say, well, I, I don't know that I know anything about those guys. You don't have to. I'm just trying to tell you sort of where these guys came from. James O'Kelly was what was called a Republican Methodist. Don't think of the Republican Party. Think of a, a group of Methodists. And he came to one of their conventions, and in 1794, he came out and said, let's just be just a Christian. And in a book about him, there's a statement made about the conference that occurred in 1792, and I wanted to read this to you. I think it's significant. This is O'Kelly saying, he says, I then arose and stood before the assembly with the New Testament of our Lord Jesus in my hand, and spake after this manner. Brethren, hearken to me. Put away all other books and forms, and let this be the only criterion, and that will satisfy me. I thought the ministers of Christ would agree to such a proposal, but alas, they opposed the motion. A certain member whose name was John withstood me after this manner. The scripture is by no means a sufficient form of government. The Lord has left that business for his ministers to do suitable to times and places and etc. I withstood him for a season, but in vain the motion was lost. You see, O'Kelly had been a Methodist and he said, let's go back and let's just let the Bible be our guide. And they said, no. Just like Jeremiah 6.16 Ask for the old paths. Walk in them. You'll find rest for your souls. But they said, we'll not walk therein. It's also likely that they came under the influence of a man by the name of Rice Haggard. I've got a copy of a little pamphlet. We would call it a tract today that he wrote. And it's titled, Address to the Different Religious Societies 
on the sacred import of the Christian name. And what Rice Hager does was say, folks, we need to quit calling ourselves this and that. We're just Christians because that's the only name that gives honor to the head of the church. The group at Old Philadelphia began with no creed, no denominational affiliation. They were just Christians trying to be what the Bible teaches us to be. Old Philadelphia became the foundation for the establishment of a lot of other churches as well. In fact, William Price and his wife and a slave named Moses moved to Alabama in 1811 to the Antioch Congregation at Bridgeport, which, by the way, was where Brother Roger Comstock preached. Those from Old Philadelphia left Tennessee, went to Alabama, Bridgeport, Alabama, and established a congregation there. In 1818, there's a letter written recommending Elizabeth Brown to the congregation at Antioch by the elders at Old Philadelphia, whose names at that time were George Stroud and David Ramsey as the bishops. You see the organization. You see them doing the right thing the way the Bible says. By the 1820s, those who were identified with Stone worked with those who had been identified with O'Kelly and Haggard. And there's some people, in fact, uh, several years ago, I got a little thing in the mail that had a, like a dictionary article that said the Churches of Christ were established by Alexander Campbell. At that time, we had a radio program, and I took a little bit of time on the radio to point out people just hadn't done their homework. Why is that the case? Thomas Campbell came to America in 1807. Alexander came in 1808. When they came, they were both Presbyterian preachers. If you start a little bit further, in 1812, Alexander Campbell was baptized into the Baptist church by Matthias Luce. He published a paper, and it's gathered together. I've got a book called The Christian Baptist from 1823 to 1830. You can say, well, I think I can start doing some math here now. If the church at Old Philadelphia was established in 1805 and the building dates to 1830, you can say, well, Alexander Campbell was too late. It was in 1826, which he indicated... He wanted to free himself from all these denominations. So you see, there was a congregation here in Warren County before Alexander and Thomas Campbell even came to America, and certainly before they ever left their denominational ties. In the 1830s, there was a lot of opposition. In fact, I went to the local library and read a number of the minutes from some of these uh, various groups where they unfellowshipped people for attending the Lord's Church. There was a number of meetings held at the courthouse, and that resulted in the establishment of the Central Congregation in 1845. A number of other congregations followed. Ivy Bluff in 1835, Smyrna in 1837, Irving College in 1838, Rocky River in 1846 or sometime before that. As you go in, the Missionary Society almost got started here in Middle Tennessee at Old Philadelphia. They recognized that wasn't scriptural. In the middle 1800s, 57 to 58, David Lipscomb 
for whom the college's name preached at Central. The war between the states halted the growth here in Warren County because of the war. The early 1900s, the gospel began to spread again and it came into communities like here. A congregation at Bobby Branch was established in 1934. By 1950, the church was growing very rapidly. A lot of the soldiers who returned from World War II realized they had been to to countries all around the world, like Brother John Biddle talked about the congregation on Okinawa. And they came back with a, a desire, said, we can carry the gospel into all the world, and there was a lot of missionary activity that took place. However, there was a little bit of sad time in the late 40s and early 50s when some began to turn too far to the right. And even the congregation here experienced some challenge with that, of antiism. 1960s, liberalism started uh, rearing its ugly head. Which leads me to the last part of the lesson is, what's going to be the future? What will we have to do to get people that we meet today to return to the original pattern? And is it possible that a congregation like Bobby Branch could leave God's pattern and then be in need of restoration again? Well, here's some things I'd like to suggest. Every generation must learn the Word of God for themselves. You and I cannot live on the faith of our parents and our grandparents. We've got to know for ourselves what God's Word teaches. Don't depend on the preacher. Don't depend on the Bible class teacher. Read your Bible and see it for what it says yourself. Acts 17 verse 11, these were more fair-minded, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They're looking and saying, is what that preacher's saying right? If it's not, I'm going to tell him it's not right. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 15, looking at young Timothy, that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You see, from the time these little children were there in the pew packer class, later on being a part of Bible Bowl, being a part of everything that encourages and teaches them to learn God's word, that's what's important. Men must be converted to Christ and not to personalities. I mentioned a number of men's names earlier. But I'm not a Christian because Alexander Campbell, nor James O'Kelly, nor Rice Haggard, nor Barton Stone, nor any of these other guys. My faith does not rest in a person. It rests in Jesus the Christ revealed in the scriptures. He is the only head of the church. And he is the one to whom we must be converted. Many of our forebears stress the Bible must be the only authoritative rule of faith and practice. I mentioned to you earlier how James O'Kelly said, what we need to do is just let the Bible be our guide. Well, what does the Bible say? 1 Peter 4.11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. 
Jesus said in John 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In 2 John 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes into you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. You see, if someone doesn't teach the truth, we must reject them. The church must continue to be evangelistic. We can't sit back and say, look at what we have inherited. You know, it's so easy to look and say, we grew up in a congregation where this building, and, but we've got to look at the future and say, where are the new souls going to come from? Just our children? Or are we going to reach out, as Jesus said in Matthew or Mark 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Or as he said in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You see, it's our obligation to be evangelistic and to reach out to other people. And we do have to pass along the truth to the generation that follows us. One of the saddest things is to read the history of the children of Israel and to recognize that you have a generation that rises up that doesn't remember God and remember His blessings. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, Paul talked about this godly mother and grandmother when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother and your mother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you also. You mamas, grandmamas, you fathers, you grandfathers, look at these little children. Bring them to services. Teach them to love God. Teach them to love His Word. Will all remain faithful? Not necessarily. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 2, And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Planting the seed for another generation. You see, as I began, I talked about what is your spiritual heritage? You and I have to make sure that our spiritual heritage doesn't just go back one generation, two generations. We need to go all the way back to the beginning. The wells of truth must be cleaned from the debris of men's doctrines. We've got to reject everything that does not come from God. And we should resolve that we're not going to fail or allow to cease in this generation the gospel. We can't afford to look at our children and our grandchildren and say, we're going to let them fend for themselves. We've got to make sure that there's got to be a future for the Lord's church in generations to come. 
If you'll take your song books out now, we're going to sing a song of invitation, Oh, Why Not Tonight? And the purpose of this song is to encourage people to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe that he's the Son of God, you're willing to repent of your sins, confess that faith, and be baptized. God will add you to his church. Now you're one of his children. Now you have a spiritual heritage. If you're a child of God struggling with sin and you need to be restored to faithfulness, we urge you to not delay, but to make things right with God now. As together we stand and say.